This episode of Breaking Brave is brought to you by Soul Snacks. Soul Snacks are single ingredient, eco-conscious dog and cat treats sourced directly from farms in Ontario and wrapped in fully compostable packaging. Treating your pets never felt so good. Use coupon code BREAKINGBRAVE for 15% off on soulsnacks.ca. That's soulsnacks.ca. This episode is also brought to you by Crank Coffee, the newest member of the Neal Brothers family. Crank Coffee is a new Canadian whole bean coffee brand that is certified organic and fair trade, founded by the Neal Brothers, Peter and Chris. This brand was influenced by cycling, coffee lovers, and experts. Check it out at the Neal Brothers online shop and use our coupon code BRAVE for 20% off your first Crank Coffee purchase. Enjoy. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Last year, I had the honor and privilege of interviewing author Dr. Daniel Kalla about his brand new book, Lost Immunity. And by the way, Lost Immunity was just shortlisted for the 2022 Crime Writers of Canada Best Novel Award. Dr. Kalla is back. I am so excited. This is my first repeat guest. Dr. Kalla has just released his newest book, The Darkness in the Light. In this brave book, Dr. Kala deals with suicidality, depression, virtual health, isolation, the mental health epidemic, and antidepressants. It is a thriller that I couldn't put down. Please welcome back to Breaking Brave, Dr. Daniel Kala. Dr. Daniel Kala is my first repeat offender. I don't mean it that way, actually. My first guest who's come back for a second discussion about what I understand to be the best novel you have ever written, in your own words. So this (laughs) is The Darkness in the Light. Tell me why you describe this as the best novel you've ever written, Daniel. (laughs) Thanks, Marilyn. It's great to be back as a repeat offender in uh, in the best sense of the word. Um, yeah, you know, that might be hyperbole. It's hard to judge after 13 books. I think this has the best mystery plot I've ever written, certainly the best twist I've ever come up with, at least the biggest twist I've ever come up with. And just arguably, uh, just two characters, the, the two voices who tell the story, I just grew very attached to as I was I was writing it. So this novel meant a lot to me. And as you know, it covers some uh, important and arguably dark themes that I wanted to convey. Thank you for that. It's not about me, but I like to, to think of myself as a super crazy, avid reader. But I figure I can get it figured out. Oh, <laughs> You took me out at the knees on this. Absolutely <laughs> did not have this figured. I mean, I thought I had it figured out, and I was so 100% wrong. 100% wrong. One of the interviews you've recently done about in talking about the twist, um, somebody said it's like John Irving. Like, that's that's a nice person to be compared to, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. An honor, for sure. Daniel, the twist, I mean, I, I, I want to go back to did the twist come first and then the book came out of that or or how how did that all work for you 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question. This is the first time I've ever come up with a whole story based on a twist. I you know I, I said it's told as you know in the first person, and there's a kind of twist that I'd never seen done. And others, people have read much more than me, have said they haven't seen that done that particular twist because usually there's certain conventions when you're writing in the first person that the reader just comes to expect. And I wanted to turn something upside down, and so I had that idea for that, and then the rest of the story unfolded from there. Fantastic. And so for our audience around the world, can you give us a little top line? Give us the Coles notes. Give us just let's hook everybody listening to this podcast so that they will run right out and buy this book. What's it about? <laughs> well, it's a sort of Scandinavian noir style um, thriller. And it's 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 set in the northernmost town in the world outside of Russia, which is Utkuyavik, Alaska, which is this incredible real community that's at the heart of the oil gas community, but it's totally isolated. It's a fly-in community only. And the story is about, uh, you know, a psychiatrist who works in Anchorage, Alaska, who's battled depression himself, who's dealing with some patients remotely. And when a young patient of his dies of presumed suicide, and then a second one goes missing, he feels entirely responsible. And he flies up to this town um, to try to get a beat on what's going on. And he's joined by a local social worker there who's a very committed woman with some demons of her own. Um, and together, what they think is starting as a missing persons inquiry and maybe involving an antidepressant that has gone bad evolves into something, you know, a lot broader and a lot scarier. And, and they soon realize that uh, there's other people who are in danger. And so it's very much, as I said, a locked door mystery because you can only get in and out of this town by flying. And so, um, you know, I, I always loved the Scandinavian noir detective stories since, you know, I first read The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And so I really wanted to create that kind of, you know, aura and that kind of ambiance and, uh, and tell a story that way. So, yeah. And have you been to this particular town that I'm going to try right now to pronounce Tiervik, Alaska. Yourself, have you ever been there? No, I haven't, because I was writing this at the peak of the pandemic, and I, I don't think, you know, I don't think there's many bigger fans of this town who've never visited it than me. I've seen so much, read so much. You know, my daughter actually was the one. I, I you know, I know I wanted a remote setting. I knew I wanted a place where suicide and depression uh, ran at very high rates, as it does in northern Alaska, and. And uh, my daughter found this town. It used to be called Barrow, Alaska. It's old colonial name, which was much easier to pronounce before they went to the indigenous name of Utkuyevik. Um, but uh, I, I haven't been to it personally, but I can't imagine watching more videos or reading more. I feel like I know this town, <laughs> um, you know, which might be presumptuous, but um, I had no opportunity. No, I ask that because in the book, it feels like you've been there, like you've walked the streets, the 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 vivid picture that you paint within the novel is like, you must have been there. But then too, I was thinking, well, no, 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 no. We talked last year and you were telling me, at least you told me the name of it, the darkness in the light and a little bit about it, very little bit. And I thought, yeah, no, you're right. You couldn't possibly have flown there and spent any time there given COVID. Yeah. yeah. I still will get there because I'm, I'm fascinated by this town, but yeah. I mean, I'm sure everybody will be, the entire town will be on the, tarmac waiting to welcome you since you've I mean, 
Thank you. First of all, I'm not at all sure anybody in the town knows I've written this book. But if they read this book, I'm not sure they'd be always waiting for me with welcoming arms. I tried to be very fair. It's a beautiful town, but there's a lot of dark things going on in my novel in this town. So, Absolutely. And I want to call out Brave on this right now, given that it's Breaking Brave, because what I did to prepare for our second chat today is you have tackled within this book in the most exquisite way suicidality, depression, antidepressants, the mental health epidemic, isolation as it relates to depression, and virtual health. Well, I might have missed something. No, that's great. I think you've summarized the themes perfectly there, Marilyn, and thank you. And 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 the key thing is remoteness, right? And and in a, in in some ways, this is an allegory uh, for the remoteness that we all experience post during the pandemic, and just the damage that remoteness. It's not a surprise that these these remote northern regions have such high rates of depression and suicidality because we are social creatures. And when we are detached, when we are isolated, we don't function well, as we all discovered during the pandemic. And so that was a huge overarching theme, how all these issues are interconnected from mental health to to human connection. It's beautiful because of the timeliness of the fact that when you were writing this during the pandemic, and then you're speaking to virtual health and screens and the psychiatrist who's the the main character not necessarily being able to get all the cues from the virtual patient because of it being on a screen. You've written it and released it in such a timely manner that this is an issue for the whole world about isolation and the, the increase in opioid usage, drug usage in general, which I'm sure you witnessed mm-hmm. firsthand as an ER doctor in Vancouver. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've always been saying, you know, I've been wrong about so many things about the about the COVID pandemic, you know, when it will end, what, you know, what, what phases we'll go through and such. But, but the one thing I think I've been right about is just saying that as the, as COVID recedes, the next epidemic pandemic is going to be the mental health um, damage that's followed in the wake of COVID. And we're definitely already seeing that, you know, and um, this book was, was an example of being able to tackle some of these themes, but not in a, not spoon feeding uh, the readers, um, it's not an essay on mental health or depression. It's just trying to show them some of the effect and after effect of, of COVID. You no, know, it's brilliant because it brings that darkness into the light. I mean, mm. by you talking about it, okay, yes, it's a thriller. Absolutely. I read that it was considered a Nordic noir or Scandinavian noir. It's fascinating. It's involving. It's a page turner. It's a thriller. People can't put it down. But... It's putting it right out there. You're talking about antidepressants. You're talking about suicide. You're talking about depression. You're talking about this mental health epidemic. It's trying to lift that curtain, I think. Mm, thank you. Which is fantastic. Just perhaps for the context of the of the listeners who didn't hear your first interview, although I've, I'm happy to report that our discussion on lost immunity that we did last year, book number 12 for you, is still being so listened to and downloaded. So, but there may be listeners who don't know who you are and what you do. So maybe you can tell <laughs> us just a little bit about. Yes, you're an author, but what else? Yeah, we had a great discussion about um, about vaccines last year, and I really enjoyed that. So remember it. 
Um, but yeah, so I mean, my day job still is as an emergency physician in downtown Vancouver, you know, the very urban uh St. Paul's is the the downtown Vancouver hospital. We have a huge substance use and mental health um, client, you know, or a lot of our visits are based on substance use and mental health uh, issues at my hospital. So it's a topic I'm incredibly familiar with. And um, yeah, so I I still work and have worked for the last 25 years as an emergency physician. And I still love that job. And I still love being able to combine these two roles of um, escaping from one one career to the other, as it were, back and forth. And as much as I understand that, some of the doctors and nurses in your hospital might think that they see themselves <laughs> or some colleague in your book, that really it's the people that you meet on the front lines as an emergency room doctor at St. Paul's that feeds that creative soul within you to create stories that you then turn into novels. Am I right with that? Yeah, to a degree. I don't try because, I mean, if I could, if I could plagiarize somebody's life story, believe me, I would if it was a good idea. I just find it's not effective to do that. You tend to create characters and and it just doesn't come across as authentic. It's just, it's it's experiences that I translate, you know? I mean, in this book, years of, of dealing with depressed patients, suicidal patients, patients with substance abuse issues, you begin to feel and recognize the pattern. I mean, I'm sure all your listeners and you, everybody who either has suffered mental health issues or knows somebody who's had a major depression understands how dark and deep a well that is that people go down. And when you meet somebody in a depression, it's unbelievable. It's We're all empaths to a degree. We all um, absorb other people's feelings, but depression is positively contagious. Like you just feel the dark cloud that they wear <laughs> come onto you when you, in the same way that when you talk to a manic patient, sometimes the energy, you know, the hype that they have sometimes is infectious. Mm. But um, it's, you know, it's it's truly uh, a unique and devastating uh, experience, uh, a major depression. And and I wanted to, to be able to use my clinical experience and my experience of talking for years to people suffering from depression um, and to create that, that feeling in the novel for the readers. And thank you for doing so. And I tried to look up some of these buckets that you're addressing very bravely in, in this novel. And I p- pulled some statistics, one of them being depression is the leading cause of disability in the world. Wow. I did not know that. It's unbelievable. Estimated 350 million people worldwide suffer from depression. Wow. That's staggering. When I look at it in terms of like that statistic, what have you witnessed, Daniel, in the emergency department through the course of, as we were talking, we were really in the thick of the pandemic. Wouldn't we all like to believe we're out? But at least now we're not as much in the thick mm-hmm. of the pandemic. What have you seen coming through your emergency room doors? Is it more overdoses, more yeah. opioid abuse? Is it more depression? I mean, is there is there something that you think has changed dramatically, worsened, gotten better? because of COVID. Yeah, no, I'd love to tell you some things have gotten better because of COVID, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. We, As you say, we still see some occasionally sick patients with COVID, especially the unvaccinated. Um, and we certainly see lots of patients who are you know, suffering with more mild to moderate COVID. 
but yeah, we've seen, you know, as I said, at St. Paul's, we're the epicenter in Canada of, of, of opioid overdose in, in our one postal code has more opioid overdoses almost than the rest of the country. Well, that's an exaggeration, but a huge, uh, there's so many intravenous substance users who live near the hospital. And, you know, one of the incredibly many sad collateral side effects of COVID is that the, the opioid crisis got that much worse. We saw a a peak in death that we didn't think we'd ever reach. Uh, it got worse after COVID. I mean, for a number of reasons. One, the isolation, more people using alone, which is the worst thing an opioid user can do. Uh, and two, the safe drug supply. Well, the, there's never a safe drug supply, but the bad drug supply was disrupted and became even less safe with more dangerous drugs. And P3, uh, more people just turning to drugs and more people falling off the wagon and stuff. Uh, and so, yeah, we saw uh, just a tragic increase in loss of primarily young lives um, through through COVID. Uh, certainly have started to see more more depression, higher rates of suicidality come through the department. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to watch. It's hard to to speak to the the victims and the families, um, you know, who lose people to both substance and and to you know and to suicide. And it's. Uh, it's just it just seems so wasteful, you know. I mean, it's terrible when someone's dying of cancer, but that's a, a horrible but natural process that sometimes there's nothing you can do. There's no it, it, there is no intervention you can do. It's just a horrible trick of fate and genetics. But so much of this this stuff related to substance death or suicidality is potentially preventable, and it's it's really hard for us to see as as healthcare workers. What maybe could we be doing differently in Canada? regarding this, to try to help, to try to stem this? I mean, we certainly, well, you you have a way of being very timely about the novels that you're writing. Did we see the pandemic coming? I know one person who did, Dr. Daniel Kellogg, because he'd already written a book about it. But we didn't see this fallout of opioid overdoses and issues and depression and isolation because of this pandemic. But what can we do in Canada that do you think to try to start to improve yeah. the situation. Well, the opioid crisis is a very specific thing, and it needs a huge mm-hmm. amount of resource and energy. Uh, it needs money poured into it for rehab and you know detox. I also, I know we if we go down this <clears throat> rabbit hole, that's all we'll talk about. But I also believe in decriminalizing and then providing safe supply to the users because. It's the only form of addiction where every time you use, you're you're risking your life. I mean, if you're an alcoholic or a cocaine mm. user, you might be destroying your life, but you're not risking your life every time you drink or every time you go on a coke binge. But it's very true with opioids, and we should be offering them a safe supply until we can get them off the opioids. So, but so there's there's definitely some specific interventions that we could do more of. And, you know, I think for the larger issue of you're talking about isolation and depression and, and you know, pessimism post-pandemic, I think talking about it, I think there's a lot of evidence, for example, with suicidality. People have always been afraid to mention suicide like it will cause it. Actually, the opposite is true. Talking about suicide sometimes prevents suicide. And for, you know, not letting people be isolated and reaching out to those in need, you know, loved ones, friends, families, um, because a lot of people suffer in silence, right? And, you know, and it's in fact the most suicidal, the deepest depression are the ones who are the least likely to talk about it, you know, and are at the highest mm. risk. And so I think it takes, you know, uh, a social network and a family network to be very proactive 
um, and recognize the signs and, and realize when someone needs help and needs support. And so it seems like a irresponsible and the right thing to do right about here, that if there is somebody listening who's struggling, who's needs help, what would you suggest, Dr. Kala, Daniel, that they that they do, just because it seems like a logical place to insert your wisdom here about that? Yeah, I mean, as, as hard as it is sometimes when you're in that low point to reach out, first of all, to turn to the, the families and loved ones that you trust and to talk to them about what you're going through. And, you know, and, and so many people feel like they're going through it alone and don't realize that, you know, there's lots of other people suffering the same way. So there's, and there's great, you know, support networks that you can tap into and there's online resources for people, um, you know, sometimes even just online chat groups for, for you know, depression mm. and loneliness and such. And worse, you know, and if you're really acutely feeling at, a, at your wit's end, every local municipality has a crisis line, someone that is there 24-7 that you can talk to. And I think it's that's a, such an incredible um, resource and, and opportunity for people. I don't think suffering in silence is the answer. Uh, I, I, you know, you, you, it's very yeah. difficult to fix your own depression um, by just withdrawing. That tends to just make it worse. No, Absolutely. Thank you for that. So you're seeing this devastation as you're standing on your feet as an emergency room doctor. Is writing an escape? <laughs> I mean, how how do you how do you turn that off? Can you turn that off when you see, you feel, mm -hmm. you must at some point as a doctor feel a little bit helpless in mm -hmm. some of these situations where you're seeing to use the word repeat offenders yeah. back and back and back again, how do you deal with it? Is is the writing part of it or is there other things that you do to just keep your own self balanced? Yeah, no, that's a great point, Marilyn. I, we often feel, you know, helpless or at least uh, unable to help. Um, you know, the emergency departments are not a catch-all. You know, if you have a dislocated shoulder, or, you know, or maybe an acute appendicitis, or you, there's certain things we can treat very well. There's some things that we even putting, you know, we're basically putting a Band-Aid on that we can't fix. So many of these social problems, a lot of mental health issues, a lot of them. So, yeah, there's, you know, first of all, we just have to resign ourselves that we, you know, we're not om omnipotent. There's, there's things that all we can do is the best we can do, which is sometimes hard to get your head around but yeah but for sure the writing is a huge escape for me i love it it's my uh it's my de-stressor time it's my it, you know it re-energizes me and, and bizarrely it also gives me more um i think compassion and empathy at work right to get into character's head to, to sort of feel from the patient perspective sometimes what it's like to suffer i'm fortunate enough not to have any chronic medical conditions so i don't see the other side of the coin that much so it's easy to forget what mm. it looks like how scary an emergency department is for most patients when they come in and stuff so yeah so the writing is right now is and the medicine have been like a perfect complement to each other and, and is there a physical place for you in the beautiful vancouver area that feeds your soul where you go to get inspired, feel good about it, let the characters come to life in your mind. Mm -hmm. Is is there a is there a space in Vancouver that you love to do that in? <laughs> and there's so many. I grew up here. This this the I, I couldn't truly imagine living anywhere else. But yeah, I, I mean I love to go, you know, 
when you get the opportunity, we have, uh, you know, the beaches and the, and the ocean is not far from me. And I have a, you know, I have a beloved dog that's so, and he doesn't swim, but he likes to go down to the water's edge and harass the dogs that are swimming. And, uh, you know, so there's, so that we often go down there. There's the local, we have this thing called UBC endowment lands, which are these beautiful natural uh, forests really between the edge of the city and the start of the university campus, um, just miles and miles and miles of trails. And so I'm, I'm there at least a couple times a week walking with friends or often my brothers and, um, and uh, all of that is kind of inspirational for my writing. In fact, I also um, love to exercise, like not not extreme exercise, but just a daily kind of cardio activity of some time, whether it's a spin bike or, you know, tennis or whatever. And I, I couldn't write without the exercise. I can't think well unless I'm exercising. I don't know if it's the blood supply to the brain or, or what, but all my best ideas come from me, come to me generally when I'm like on an exercise bike or out, out doing some kind of activity. So yeah, they're intimately uh, related, the creativity and the exercise. And you're a big skier. So Whistler and skiing and outdoors is a big, you, were you able to get back to that last winter a little with, with some of the restrictions being lifted? Absolutely. Actually, both the last two years, the skiing was, there were a lot of COVID restrictions in place about mask wearing and stuff the year before. This year, the, it, it was loosened to a degree. Um, but yeah, I was a good skier in Vancouver. I love it. I wouldn't at all call myself outdoorsy. I don't think I've camped in my entire life, but but I love downhill skiing. I grew up on it. And Whistler is just for those, I'm sure many of your listeners have seen it. If you haven't, it's it's an experience. Even if you don't ski, it's one of the most beautiful places to be on a sunny day at the top of Whistler. It's just the scenery is just staggering. It's an incredible place. And I, I, I really call it my happy place. So, yeah. Good. I've chatted with a lot of writers, and and writers have said to me, oh, I hate the process. It's so hard. I get writer's block. I, 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 I have to force myself. But yet, here you are saying, Daniel, I love it. It's a great <laughs> escape. Is, do, you, do you hit some points sometimes where it's like, oh. damn, I've got a roadblock happening here, and I can't figure it out? Sure. Sure. I mean, I, I, you know, all the time it's, it's, it is, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a huge challenge. And then you set a standard for yourself. I think all writers do. And it's, and then you're concerned that you're not, you're not meeting, you know, that you're becoming derivative or that you're becoming repetitive or, you know, so sure. I struggle with all of that, but I'm, uh, for me, it's all about momentum. And when I get into a story, I just, you know, if I, I reach this point where so far, knock on wood, I've never blocked after that. It's just sometimes I can't keep up with, you know, that's my favorite for me. The most incredible feeling as a writer is to start a chapter and not being able to type it fast enough because, you know, you can't keep up with the scene. So mm. I get lots of rushes. The part I hate about the writing is the publication process. Like, you know, um, A, it's always a bit disappointing. You have expectations, you know, this book isn't doing as well as that book. And, you know, and, you know, it's not making as many bestseller lists or whatever. And you worry you're letting your publisher down. And and then there's all the self-promotion. Not like this. I mean, I love having a chat with you, Marilyn, somebody who knows the book and read it. But, you know, just pushing yourself in 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 other brief media appearances and often repeating the same thing mm. and 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 you know the book signings mm. I, I don't like any of that stuff so I, I love the part up until the book is published and then I don't like the 
maybe, maybe possibly because I just haven't had a su- successful enough publication. <laughs> and if I was, you know, oh come on, no, but I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, I'm incredibly lucky. But you know what I mean? I, I've always, you know, I'm ambitious about you know where I want to be and what I want to do, and mainly because I want to keep writing and I want to have my readers and readership. And I'm not trying to get fabulously wealthy off writing, but I'd like to be consistently, you know, published and have that 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 platform and that audience to uh to tell stories to so i'm always a bit you know anxious that the you know that this is gonna be the last book that anyone reads right so yeah i think that's a true artist in you though daniel because when you talk to artists and they're the process the creation whether it's music or painting or drawing or whatever but then you got to put it out there in the world and do all Mm -hmm. that kind of commercial stuff yeah and and they don't like it either. So I think you're right in line with anybody who's a, got a creative spirit who enjoys that process. But then the commercialization of it, yeah, yeah not so. Much. Well, it's not even it's not even a purist like that. Like I don't. I'm happy it's commercial. I'm happy, but I'm just so new. You know, as a doctor, I've never had to go out in the street and tell somebody to come in to see me as a a patient. I've never had to sell myself, <laughs> right? And uh, it's so unusual to be in a situation where I'm doing that, yeah. where I'm, I'm peddling my books and, and it feels, it's just, it feels awkward for me, you know? I understand. A salesperson is not who you are at your core, perhaps. I understand. No. What has, on the subject of sales, what has the, uh, the response been to this fantastic The Darkness in the Light novel? You say it's the best novel you've ever written. I haven't read all your books, but I'd agree with you. Uh-huh. Thanks, what is the world saying? What's the world saying about it? Well, I, you know, I, the reviews that are out there have been, have been you know, good I, for me because, you know, I always had that imposter syndrome early on as a writer that I, you know, I'm just pretending to be a writer. I'm not, I'm not real. And, and, I, and for example, uh, the Globe and Mail did a review the weekend it came out and the Legendary Margaret Cannon, who's uh, who reviews most of the crime fiction, is probably the best known crime fiction reviewer in Canada, and has not always been hugely praiseful of my work. Often, but she called, you know, I think her quote was, "This is the po- perfect post-pandemic thriller." And she, you know, and she said she was hornswoggled, which term I've never u- heard used before by the twist. She said, "So like you, she didn't see." And she said, "You know, as somebody who reads a lot of." She's probably read more crime books than anybody alive, or at least as many. And, uh, you know, for her to to find that it was a good mystery and a good twist, that was a, a huge validation for me. I was really, it meant a lot to me. And so and then on the other end, I'm hearing from readers and, you know, and, and you can see on Goodreads and stuff, the, the reviews have been pretty good. And, um, and that means a lot to me. Good. You deserve it. You deserve it. You deserve it. Thank Have you. you been doing a little bit of the the signings, the live signings in and around? I mean, obviously, you've got a very busy career outside of authoring novels, but have you been showing up? And is that yeah. nice to do face-to-face stuff with people? Yeah, no, I haven't done a lot of that. And through, you know, through it's my third book, really, that's come out since, you know, I had the, my first book came out right at the beginning of the pandemic, The Last High. And then lost immunity. We talked about last year. Came out in the middle of the pandemic, so um, there haven't been a lot of things like the traditional book signings. I was just in Toronto last weekend for the Motive, you know, the Tifa, 
the <clears throat> Toronto National Festival of Authors um, put on a crime uh, sort of subgenre festival. And so I spoke at that and got to meet. It was really fun because I got to meet, you know, so many fellow authors there. I sat beside Kathy Reichs, had a dinner with her on Saturday night, you know, um, and was it's great it's 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 so fun to meet because i don't uh, the one thing unlike so many people so many writers who are full-time writers um who are so connected to the author community i'm like a, i'm not a pariah exactly but i'm an unknown like i just i have never had time or energy and i live in vancouver to connect with a lot of other writers so for me it was a real thrill to be able to last weekend and i love that about the author community and that everyone supports each other that when somebody's got a book coming out, you know, you would think that perhaps it's competition, but yet it's not viewed that way from what I can see. Everybody's promoting everybody else in a, in a really great way because I think that they, they look at it as we all win. When each of us win, we all win. So I, I bet they loved the opportunity to hang out with you. I don't know about that, but I it certainly, but that is a very good point. It really is a collegial, you know, the, you know, bigger authors give smaller authors blurbs and quotes for their books and on social media. Now, so many other authors will promote each other's releases and stuff. You're absolutely right. It's not viewed as like, I have to get this share of the buy. Um, it's not a zero sum game. The idea is to encourage readers. And, you know, and if I can convince somebody to, to open their eyes to a, a writer and make them fall in love with a certain degree of fiction, maybe they'll be buying other books, including my own at some point. So it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful community that way. I mean, on the cover of The Darkness in the Light, you've got a quote from Samantha Bailey, mm -hmm. an absolute must read from a remarkable talent. And I've interviewed Samantha Bailey, and all of you are all supporting each other, yeah. and it's it's fantastic that that's happening. Yeah, and she's such a sweet person. I met her in person for the first time in New York, actually, last week. Um, and her her new book is just you know being a phenom um, that uh, and and is a really good book. And watch out for her. I was just saying that's the name of the book. But yeah, but she's she's lovely, and Sam knows everybody. Like she's. Uh, She's the epicenter, seemingly, of the um, the author's world. So, um, but you're right; it is it's a it's a lovely community. The one thing I've learned is that women read so much more fiction than men do, or at least buy so much more fiction. You know that, it, and and you now look at the list of the the week I hit the Globe and Mail bestseller list. I was the only male name, <laughs> and then in subsequent weeks there were no male. Uh, writers and it it really is interesting how and it depresses me how many of my male friends don't read they'll read nonfiction they'll read a lot of newspapers and online things but they won't read um fiction nearly to the degree that my female friends do and i think it's really sad like i mean it's one of the great joys they're missing out mm -hmm. they're missing out with with the world opening up again and with me having an opportunity to now travel for the work that i do uh, first of all i love that yeah but I, uh, the, the second part of what I love so much about it is the ability to settle into an airplane seat and open a book. Yeah. I never turn on the screen. And so I was privileged enough to actually work in New York recently with Condé Nast. Wow. I wish that New York, uh, that New York was farther because I had your book <laughs> 
And I was like, what do you mean the seatbelt sign's going on? What do you mean we're landing? Come on. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't want to put this down. You're a terrific champion. But, the, but you know, that's interesting. I had that same experience when I was landing in Europe. I was reading a friend's book, and it was so good. And I, I didn't know, so I can totally relate. But that's exactly, when I'm writing a novel, that's exactly what I think of. Would I read this book on a plane? Would it Would it make me choose rather than to watch some, you know, Hollywood movie that instead that I'll read this story? And that's always what goes through my mind. That, to me, is the litmus test for the kind of books I write. That and a poolside. Would I read this if I was in Hawaii or Mexico? <laughs> would I read this by the pool, right? So... Absolutely. Is this thing coming home with sun lotion all over the cover? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you like to read, Daniel? Let's go there, and then I'm gonna then I'm gonna ask you if if I can, if I'm allowed, what you're working on. Mm-hmm. So, what are you reading? What What are you reading right now? For example, if if I could ask that question, because I, I don't know of another question in the world that erases my memory quicker than people asking me, "What am I reading? <laughs> what am I?" I literally just finished three books, including Sam's book and, uh, and a yeah, book that's coming out. Yeah, watch out for her, but we, we got that and now. Catherine, yeah. Catherine McKenzie um, has a book coming out called uh, "Please Join Us," which was really enjoyable. And I was working with Catherine in Toronto, so uh, I read that, and that's coming out next month. I just finished that, but I've also read the Larry McMurtry, um, you know, the Lonesome Dove series. Uh, I don't know if you've ever. Yeah. Read it brilliant. He won the Pulitzer Prize. Never I in my I've life. heard of it, but no, never in my life. He just passed away this year, unfortunately. But never in my life would I think that I could be absorbed by a Western novel like three. They're massive books, they're 1200 pages, but it's some of the most beautiful, funniest writing. And I just love them, I just tore them up. So I, that's a reflection. I read so eclectically, you know, I read some thrillers, mm-hmm. I read some literary novels, not that many, but just whatever catches my attention. I hardly ever read medical thrillers. <laughs> I can't remember the last one I read. <laughs> um, I, I get enough of them when I read my own stuff. So, yes. um, but um, yeah, I like, I just, you know, like you say, I just love to be absorbed in a good story. I don't, you know, I don't care what it what it is, just as long as it, the world wraps me up. And my favorite thing, because I grew up like on James Mishner, I learned all my history through him. Michael Crichton is my hero. You know, when you can get a, an author who absorbs you and, you know, and attaches you to some characters, a love story, a tragedy, and then passively teaches you a bunch of history, a bunch of science, a bunch of, to me, you know, that's that's the ideal. And that's what I often try to emulate in my writing. With that in mind, then, um, Daniel, what maybe could you tell me about <laughs> what are you working on next? Because the darkness in the light was number 13. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Lucky number 13. Mm-hmm. What do you think might be next? Or is that not okay to ask? No, it's a, we're starting a tradition, Marilyn, where I announce my next book every time on your on your podcast. I know, right? Um, I love it. Yeah, so it's done. I mean, it's it's still an editorial process, but it's um it's a novel that's um it takes a couple of the characters from the last high, but introduces a bunch of other new characters and tells the story of this very toxic diet pill that emerges in online in Vancouver and Los Angeles. And there's a spate of deaths of young people, um, people with you know eating disorder, body dysmorphia, um, and also bodybuilders. Um, who are abusing this uh, drug, and it's based on a on a you know a tragic case I heard about of this real. It's an explosive, actually. It's a World War One explosive that called DNP, dinitrophenol, and um, 
they, it was invented for the howitzer shells in World War One, and they found in the munitions factory of France, the people working around it started to get hot all the time and lose weight, and a few of them died. And then later, a chemist from Harvard in the 30s turned it into this diet pill that was all the rage for a little while amongst marketed to housewives in all the magazines until a bunch of women started to die from it. And then it was banned and disappeared for 50 years and was always available as an industrial agent. And it reappeared in the late 90s in the bodybuilding world because it's incredibly effective metabolic agent, both at shedding fat and building muscles. But it's also a horrible poison that can be deadly at any level. Um, you know, even one or two pills can kill people. Um, and um, and if you take it wrong, it for sure will be deadly. And I didn't know anything about it until this this case happened and and realized that there's this this gray black market for this drug and that there's lots of people susceptible. There's there's clusters of death happening all over the first world from it. And so I for me to build a story about a conspiracy to to traffic and in this drug and when a famous young celebrity you know who's huge mega celebrity dies who's got a, a hidden eating disorder um it sort of hits the limelight and um and and the, these two detectives both one in vancouver and one in los angeles who are working on parallel cases um connect to try to solve um the mystery of where it's coming from but it let me explore all these themes around, you know, online body shaming and, and, you know, and eating disorders. And, you know, I, I, I had my two daughters are in their early twenties, but grew up and the number of friends they had that, you know, suffered from, but to also learn that, you know, and I'm, I'm I make a point in this novel that, that eating disorders and uh, body dysmorphism, as it's called, is not uh, limited to just young female teenagers. It's young young men are susceptible, middle-aged men are susceptible. It actually spans the spectrum. I know you're highest risk for a certain demographic for sure, but it's a huge issue. And, you know, and social media compounds this issue, as we know, and I'm sure you've covered many times, but hundreds of times over. But but then you throw in this kind of panacea promise of a quick fix that's a very dangerous one. And some people are even aware of the risks and willing to, you know, willing to risk their lives just just for the better body image that they perceive, right? So it's... it's well, uh, timely yet again, Daniel, you refer to a case. Was it a case that you were involved with or was it a case that you read in a medical journal or... Yeah, just a case I heard about. I didn't, I wasn't at all. I would never <clears throat> write. And, and, and there's nothing in the book except that this case involved a, a DNP poisoning and death that I never recreated. And I'd never heard of, I'd, I'd never heard of this. Well, I'd amazingly, but as a, as a, as a physician, as an emergency physician, I was astounded that I had never heard of it. And my colleagues had never heard of it. And my colleagues who dealt with the case had never heard of it, but it's a much bigger problem than you would think. So, yeah. Wow. Well, I, I'll, I'll go on record as asking you, not having to commit you at this point, but if you'd like to be a, a three-peat offender, we'd love to have you back and, and, and chat about this next book. It'll become something that I look forward to yeah. every year to have you back and talk about the next incredibly brave subject that you're taking on. Yeah. And so thank you. Um, um, I will commit to I'd be delighted to come back next year. Yeah. Oh, thank you. So for people who may not have heard our original interview around lost immunity, um, how can people get in touch with you, Dr. Daniel Kala? How can people support you, support 
the darkness and the light, how this is this is the self-promotion piece that I know you're just going <laughs> to grit and hate, but here it comes. Oh, that's great. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, just by reading the book, they'd be supporting me. By buying the book, even better. But uh, I'm a big fan of libraries, and, and people can reach me. So it's Daniel Kalla, K-A-L-L-A, all one word, dot com through the website. They can... They can email me directly. They can find more information on this book and any other book and how to order them. So, yeah, so that's the, probably the easiest way, danielcalla.com. Fantastic. Thank you for your time. Great. I so appreciate you and the work you're doing and the incredible gifts you're giving to us through education, but also just the page turners that I, I need them to go into a holding pattern over LaGuardia the next time so that <laughs> I can keep on reading. <laughs> Thanks, Ron. Such a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time. <laughs>